Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest tactical and strategic updates from Ukraine, and we'll speak to The Telegraph's Moscow correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, about the Russian experience of the war. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's the 6th of April, day 42. And today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, assistant foreign editor Katie O'Neill and Natalia Vasilyeva, the Telegraph's Moscow correspondent, who joined us from Istanbul. I started by asking Dominic and Katie to give us the latest news from the war. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Uh, so shelling uh, across the across the country. Um, the mayor of uh, the governor of Donetsk said that an aid point there was shelled, which killed a number of civilians. Uh, and we've seen more uh, more shelling across the north and, and the east as Russia tries to move around to the to the Donbass. Um, elsewhere, the Red Cross says it's managed to get a convoy of 500 civilians out of uh, Mariupol, the besieged um, coastal city in the south. Um, the 500 people have gone to Zaporizhia. However, um, defense, British defence intelligence say that that still leaves 160,000 people uh, in the city with no light, communications, uh, medical supplies, heat or water. So it's it's still horrifically grim there. But uh, there's still a lot lot more to do. Um, that's it. The kind of tactical side There's a lot more on the on the strategic and the politics side. But I'll just take a pause there. Yeah, I'll jump in there. So, uh, you know, as Don was saying in, in Mariupol, the situation continues to deteriorate. Uh, President Zelensky yesterday telling uh, Turkish TV that uh, Russians are trying to conceal the extent of the destruction um, and the civilian casualties um, that have uh, died during fighting in Mariupol. Um the Ukrainian security intelligence is showing that Russians uh, are planning to gather bodies that have been killed uh, during the conflict and sort of putting them in one place to present them as mass victims of Ukrainian troops. Uh, another worrying report coming out from uh, the Mariupol City Council today uh, who are claiming that the Russians are uh, utilising mobile crematoriums to get rid of um, citizens before uh, any sort of aid agencies or the international community can get into Mariupol to see the extent of the, the damage there following what we saw in um, in Bucha. Uh, elsewhere, we had Zelensky yesterday addressing the UN Security Council with quite an impassioned uh, speech calling for Russia to be expelled from the uh, Security Council, which is diplomatically very challenging, but 
but um, the latest in, in Zelensky's sort of tour of, of diplomats. He's been um, almost on a daily basis uh, videoing into various parliaments around the world and a similar address there yesterday to the Security Council. Um, elsewhere, we see a lot of focus on the Donbass today. Uh, some uh, humanitarian corridors being opened up to get civilians that are, that are trapped there out. Um, uh, yeah, the, the Donbass becoming a, a real area of, of concentration. The head of NATO has said last night that that's where Russia is going to concentrate their efforts now going forward uh, to seize the Donbass. Um, areas around there like uh, Slavyansk are also seeing um, uh, movement from Russian troops planning more aggression there. Um, if if Russia is to, to capture sort of areas around Donbass, it will help them to uh, to open up sort of a, t- a tunnel or a passage from uh, from uh, Crimea. So the Donbass is, is becoming a, an area of, of particular importance at the moment in the war. Could we just for a moment focus on uh, Borodyanka? We had a, a, a dispatch um, from, our, from our correspondent out there. Um, Casey O'Neill, what, what did they find? What did they see in Borodyanka? So Borodjanka after uh, Bucha, it was one of the sort of areas that Zelensky was saying, you know, the devastation, the devastation that we saw in Bucha, you know, the the, the civilians, the, the bodies of civilians that were lining the roads there, the mass grave that we saw dug in a, in a massive trench, trench in Bucha. Uh, Zelensky said that, you know, as Russians retreat from different areas and we can get in and the international community and the Ukrainians can get in to survey the damage, we're going to see the likes of the devastation that we saw in Bucha. Uh, so, yes, we had a our, uh, our dispatch there from uh, our correspondent uh, Danielle Sheridan um, just complete devastation is what she was reporting seeing although th- there's yet to be a mass grave discovered there residents are saying well underneath the, the rubble that, that that's surrounding us that's where the mass graves are that's where bodies of civilians still are that we're not able to uh, to retrieve so uh, the investigators still there surveying the, the situation we spoke to some young schoolboys there who would ordinarily be in school but were cycling their their bikes around uh, surveying the damage sort of trying not to get their tires pierced with the debris and the glass and um and the metal that's that's just completely uh, uh, scattering the roads there. Complete devastation, all re- residential and, and, and other buildings there, completely blown out and the remnants of, of people's lives there to see blasted on the streets. Don Natalia, I don't know if either of you want to come in on this as well. Sure, if I can just add, this is Natalia here. Um, yeah, obviously... Um we have yet uh, Bucha. I, I, I realized that Bucha was a big shock for um, anyone who's been following Ukraine, who's been following the war in Ukraine. Um, obviously, this is a small town outside Kiev in the area that has been under Russian occupation for several weeks now. Um, again, um, um, swathes of Ukraine, which uh, were under Russia, Russian occupation, are just g- being liberated. And I think it's quite likely that uh, places like Bucha and Baradyanka um, will not be unique um, in the um, horrific war crimes that we have yet to discover. Obviously, one of the issues is, is Mariupol. And as uh, Dom, I think, mentioned earlier, we still, you know, f- uh, independent journalists have no access to Mariupol. Um, um, or independent journalists or um, aid workers. So we have yet to see what um, what we can find in places like that. This is definitely not not the end of the war in terms of the war crimes we have yet to document. Thanks, Natalia. And, and Don, would you just like to comment on? We, we've spoken for several days of this this retreat from the north by the Russian forces and their slow slow swinging around to 
to to Luhansk and to, to to the Donbass region. This this feels as if the, the, the hammer blow. This is the next place the hammer blow is going to strike. Do we have any sense of when this is happening? I mean, I know you've talked about how how long it could take for these for these soldiers uh, and these battle groups to be reconstituted. So. Uh- yeah, reconstitution, as we were saying yesterday, consists of fixing the, the people uh, and secondly, the reorganisation of those of those units. So you might not want to fight as you had done before. You might want to um, physically change the, the, the brigades, the battalions and the fighting units, the formations that, that you have. And that, that all takes time. Bearing in mind that the bloody nose they've been given already in the north, um, it, it should take quite, quite a while for, for Russia to reduce its forces. Now, it's probably going to be a, a different fight in the Donbass. And there are 10 brigades of highly trained and very well equipped Ukrainian troops there waiting for them. Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dom. Can we just move to, I mean, we've mentioned some of the diplomatic changes today. We've also had um, the EU saying it, it'll impose sanctions against imports of Russian oil and gas. The quote is sooner or later. Uh, this is Charles Michel, president of the European Council. Um, Katie, do you want to speak to that? What, what's happening in Europe? Uh, yeah, so Europe last night uh, announcing that they are going to ban the import of uh, Russian coal. Uh, but obviously, gas and oil still remains a, a very contentious issue given Europe's uh, dependence on Russian oil and gas. And you have a lot of uh, opposition from countries like Germany and France that are really dependent uh, on Russian imports uh, to sort of, the, you know, they're bristling against this idea of, a, of an outright ban at this point, um, pleading for uh, more time to uh, to equip themselves and to find different, uh, different sources uh, of oil and gas before cutting. Uh, Russia off completely. But yes, Charles Michel today saying that uh, sooner or later we're going to uh, cut ourselves uh, in uh, in Europe off um, Russian oil and gas, but it just remains uh, re- remains difficult. Um, but we've, we're seeing a lot of uh, uh, international response to the Bucha um, imagery and uh, the stories coming out of there of, of brutality, um, a number of diplomats being uh, expelled in, in various countries. Uh, There's also a report last night that Putin's daughters, who are um, rather secretive figures, had been on a draft list for um, sanctions, to be personally sanctioned themselves. Uh, If this does go out, it hasn't been announced yet, but um, if that is something that the uh, EU pushes to do, it would be a largely symbolic move because um, both of those women are not believed to have many assets outside of um, Russia, but you know it's just sort of part of this uh, strategy uh, by the West to sort of get at, at Putin and, and personally name-checking his daughters in um, sanctions is likely to do that. Um, elsewhere, we have the US... Uh, saying that uh, they're uh, introducing further sanctions, investing in in Russian uh, Russia is going to be something that's going to be banned in the US, and also unveiling different sanctions against Russian banks today. Um, further, you know, away from sanctions, uh, Anthony Blinken today announcing that uh, the US is going to provide, I think, a hundred million dollars uh, worth of anti-tank uh, weaponry uh, to. Uh, to Ukraine, I think that brings their spending to uh, Ukraine in, in terms of its its defense aid to something like 1.9 billion dollars since the uh, since the conflict began. So yeah, this is we've we've really seen a ramping up in the past couple of days um, in the international response uh, in response to uh, what we're seeing in in Busha. Thanks, Katie. Uh, Natalia or Dom, is there anything to add to that before we move on? So I was just going to add one final point about Busha. So in the U.S. Security Council meeting yesterday. The Russian representative Vasily Nebenzia uh, was speaking, a grand display of um, deflection, denial, um, 
you know, and uh, and good old fashioned discrediting the, the 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 accusations put to put to Russia. But I think it was very it's worth focusing on the on the words because we 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 know that uh, Russia um, often use words and, and describe situations, blaming the other side ahead of their own actions. Um, and so it was particularly worrying yesterday. He was saying that, uh, wait, this is a direct quote. So President Zelensky is claiming all these staged events in Bucha give the Ukrainians the right for an uncivilized response. Well, we can just imagine what that is, end of quote. I mean, that's that's hor- horrific. He's talking about, first of all, he gets the, the jab in about staged events in Bucha as if that's now just all commonly accepted that we all, we all know that. Um, and well, we can imagine what, what that is. He then said, quote, the clear inconsistency between the Ukrainian version and the actual facts is clear. Again, very worrying that he said that. But he finished with these with these words. And please listen to these. His, this is a quote. We understand very well. Sorry, I should say this is to his Western, to the other Western members of the UN Security Council. So the quote is, we understand very well what you're doing by fueling anti-Russian hysteria every single day. We are assuming that there will be further horrible provocations similar to the one in Butcher and new attempts to discredit Russian soldiers and to present them as murderers and rapists. End of quote. So I'm really worried as we as we mentioned yesterday um the chances of there not being any further horrific scenes such as in butcher elsewhere as as russia seeds territory are looking vanishingly small now thanks very much tom um so for the second part of this of the spaces uh, we have our moscow correspondent telegraph's moscow correspondent natalia vasilieva um to tell us a little bit about how russians are experiencing the war, what they're seeing on television, and to understand the sort of the, the, the yeah exactly that the experience of this war from from a Russian perspective. So thank you very very much, Natalia, for for joining us. Can can I start by asking about the the, the brain drain from Russia? I mean, we saw in the opening weeks uh, of the war thousands of of Russians fleeing the country. Um, where where have these people gone, and what's their experience like? Sure. Um... Well, I have to say that it's very hard to come up with uh, exact figures of how many people have left. Um, I have two examples to give just to, to show you how um, how monumental, how sudden this brain drain is. We're just talking about the first four weeks of the war. Um, Georgia, which is a former Soviet republic in the South um, Caucasus, in the first month, in the first month, in the first four weeks of the war, they. Um, recorded 35,000 Russians who entered Georgia in um, in four weeks alone. And Georgia, obviously, is a country of three million. So that presence um, has been quite visible. I myself was in Georgia um, on the in the second week of the war. You could see in the streets at banks and shops um, dozens and dozens of um, disoriented, um, shocked Russians who are just basically trying to uh, p- put their lives together. There's another. There's another um, figure that I recently saw, which was seventy thousand IT specialists who left Russia in the first month. And obviously, a lot of the brain drain goes undocumented because you know. Im- imagine if you're going through passport control you get your ticket and go no one is no one is counting whether you're going on holiday whether you're coming back or not but that uh brain drain is um i mean so far it's anecdotal you know i can speak about my own friends and my own social circle and how many people have left um obviously people who are leaving are overwhelmingly those whose skills are transferable who 
um, often work remotely for international companies or um, who can work remotely, like, you know, any IT specialists. Uh, it's definitely harder for someone who, say, you know, runs a small business in Moscow or in any other Russian city to move. Um, but um, we are seeing that the Kremlin is actually acknowledging the brain drain because the most recent um, uh, the most recent announcement on that that I've heard was the Kremlin offering um, special benefits, offering deferments from draft from military draft for IT specialists if they were staying in Russia. And what's the experience of the Russians in their new countries like? I mean, have they been have they been welcomed or, or shunned? Do we have a sense of that? Well, yes. I mean, as I've, as I've said, obviously, um, everything that, that's been happening in this part of the world in the past six weeks is absolutely um, historic, tragical, um, obviously in Ukraine. But this war has affected ordinary Russians in a tragic way, too, um, because... Um, I would say the overwhelming majority of people who left in the first weeks of war, they are um, those who oppose Putin, who realize the moral, the economic fallout um, of the Russian invasion. Um, and they all ended up in a, in a quite precarious situation abroad because um, any Russian citizen who has had a Russian bank account and who has kept early savings in Russian banks woke up one morning to uh, find out that their Visa and MasterCard cards suddenly stopped working and there was no way to access their savings. Um, a lot of people, um, um, you know, their, their passports are about to expire. They don't have any Visa. Um, obviously, this is not... Um, I don't think I know anyone who are who are applying for asylum because you know it's it's hard to say like what what is your case because you know we're not we're not Ukrainians we're not fleeing a war um, but in countries like Turkey Georgia Armenia um, Kazakhstan um, the sort of countries which are um, easy to access for for Russians which are visa free. Um, they have seen an influx of uh, Russians applying for resident permis uh, permits, um, trying to set up uh, local bank bank accounts and um, tax numbers because you know you're you're essentially trying to build your life from scratch. Um, in terms of in terms of how we're being received, I think it varies a lot. Um, the um, I would say that in in most cases the. Uh, no one, um, you know, it's it's very hard to think of any. Um, everyone is quite understanding of what you know Russians are fleeing. Actually, um, in uh, places like Georgia, it's a bit more difficult because I realized that for many in Georgia that saw a five-day war in Russia in two thousand eight. Um, the war with, with Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, brings back, um, you know, the, the most difficult memories of that war, and um, a lot of Russians don't feel welcome in Georgia. But I would say that this is the this, that was the initial emotion reaction. Um, other than that, um, you know, everyone is just trying to to rebuild their lives. Obviously, you know, no one is um, no one is waiting for you, bringing you something on a silver platter, but. 
um, you know, we just have to make a living somehow because, you know, for a lot of people, they can't come back to Russia. For a lot of people, they don't see how they can keep on living um, uh, in Russia in, in the circumstances like we have now. And just turning back to look at Russians still in Russia, I mean, the vast majority of people obviously couldn't couldn't flee. Yeah. What what's what's their life like now? And I'm, I'm particularly interested in, I think, for our listeners as well. What what does what do ordinary Russians see see on their news channels? How, how is the war being reported? And I guess one big question is, how much do they actually believe? Um, that's a very good question. I, one thing I would add to that is, um, I mean, as a journalist, of course, I. Um, um, to me, if someone who's been covering Russia for the past 14 years, that's the biggest question. Do Russians really believe what they've been told on TV? Um, I went out um, in central Moscow on the first day of the invasion um, you know, to talk to people in the street, what they thought about the invasion. I found that they, um, um, as far as I remember, eight out of ten people that I spoke to, that I approached in the street, um, realized uh, what a horrible crime it was on the Kremlin's part. Um, but again, this is this is central Moscow. Obviously, this is not true for the rest of the country. Um, I think what we have been seeing in the, in, in, the, um, in recent weeks, which is uh, which is quite unprecedented. Um, I'm I'm judging from my conversations with my friends back home, from some people I know, from what I saw in uh, television, television broadcasts. Um, a lot of Russians believe what they're being told on Russian TV, um, like what the Russian uh, representative in the EU, in the UN is saying, because it's um, it's a very comfortable thing to believe. It's very hard to face the fact that you're living in the country and you have voted for a man who turned out to be a war criminal. That's a very uncomfortable truth. And what we've been seeing and which has been overwhelmingly reported is that um, a lot of Russians who have relatives in Ukraine, whose relatives are actually spending nights in bomb shelters, who lost their homes, who lost their parents, they um, those Ukrainians are finding hard to... Um, to explain to those relatives in Russia what's happening because their relatives are refusing to believe them because against their reality um, is so monstrous. So in some way, it's not about what, what you're, what you're, what you're seeing, but whether you're, are you willing to believe it or not? Or are you, um, or do you completely refuse to, to, you know, to ask questions to find out? Obviously, I mean, you know, we, we, we should, we should uh, mention that, um, Russia's main independent news uh, radio station has been shut down, um, as has been the um, um, Russia's main uh, independent TV channel. Um, but um, you can still access information online. A lot of people have installed VPNs to um, um, to use it as a backdoor against government uh, blocking independent websites. Um, but I think at this point, um, it's not about whether you have access to the information, but whether, whether you want to know what's actually happening in places like Bucha and Borodyanka. So, Natalia, may I ask a question, please? Sure. So, um, growing up in Russia uh, and and living there, working there, forming social networks, all the rest of it. I mean, what are the what are the signs? What are the signals? How when you meet new people, um, how do or do you just not approach the subject of 
So what do you think about the government then? Or you know, are we on the same page regarding Putin? Or does, does it ever come up? Or when, how, how are these social cues managed between people to know whether or not you, you can talk about this stuff or question what you're being fed by the government? I'd, I'd be fascinated to know how that, how that sort of bleeds through society and whether or not these, mm. there are these sort of human cues. Mm-hmm. Dom, I think this is, you know, that would be true for any country, including Russia, that um, in peacetime, a lot of people would tell you that they're not interested in politics, that they're not interested in talking about. And I personally know a number of people who fled Russia in the first or a second week of the war because they were horrified by what Putin has done. And these were people who worked in arts, in education, in culture, who have never been political, who I would never have conversations um, uh, about politics with, who would tell me that, you know, I'm... I'm I'm doing my own thing. Um, I'm working at this modern art museum. Uh, look at you know whatever contemporary ballet that we're developing in Russia. And people felt all those years, you know, in the in the three decades since the fall of the Soviet Union, that as long as you as long as you were not meddling in politics, as long as you were not, you know, interested in running for parliament, asking what the parliament is doing. You can have a very nice and comfortable life and the government is not going to interfere. You can have um, a modern arts festival. Um, You can build uh, one of the biggest, uh, largest private banks. You you can build a, a, um, I don't know, um, modern telecommunications company or an online company which would get listed in London. And you could do that um, and you wouldn't be interested in politics. But that changed, obviously, on the 24th of February when even those who were not interested, they were sort of thrust into new reality that, um, you know, you cannot stay apolitical any, any longer. And the, But you were able to do it for the past 30 years. You could live in your little world, completely insulated from Putin and from Kremlin. That, I think, leads us nicely to the next question, which is about the Russian, the state of Russian politics and the opposition. If I mean, now, but a month, more than a month into this war, is it fair to say that there's, 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 really no, there's really no opposition apart from a few very, very brave people doing their own individual things? There's no organised opposition to, to Putin's regime. Is, is that fair, Natalia? Uh, well, David, I would say there's no politics in Russia. I think it's a fair assessment because um, around the time when Alexei Navalny was arrested, when he was put in prison or when um, his vast network of supporters was decimated, this was the time we could speak about um, uh, Russian opposition being destroyed. Right now, we're seeing that there's no politics. Um, uh, you know, I, I would like you to, to remind you of this um, televised discussion um, um, at the Russian Security Council that went viral two days before the war, which was the, the, the day when Russia's political elite essentially gave the green light to the invasion. Uh, that was that uh, famous meeting where Putin um, uh, dressed down uh, the chief of Russian foreign intelligence as if he was a schoolboy. And you could see at that meeting that no one in the Russian political elite, as we would say it, starting from Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to the head of Russia's foreign intelligence, Sergei Naruskin, um, you know, who looked like embarrassing schoolboy. They have absolutely no sway on the decision making. And that at the end of the day, this is just one person who calls the shots. So it's not about 
it's not even about the opposition. It's it's not even about people who are close to Putin, who would have any influence. Obviously, we saw, um, you know, there's there's a sort of a liberal wing. We always thought there was a liberal wing inside the Russian government, including the chief of the Russian Central Bank, a highly respectable, uh, respected and uh, professional um, woman, um, the um, Russian economic minister. All those people were completely sidelined. Obviously, these are the officials who would not who would not advise people to, uh, who would not advise Putin. Uh, to go to war against Ukraine, knowing what the consequences would be. But what we're seeing now is that um, the country is essentially ruled by one man, and um, there is there is no one that can um, uh, that can influence his decision making. I'm just I'm not I'm not seeing um, I'm not seeing it happen at all. And just thanks, Natalia. That's really interesting. Um, just on that, obviously, there's been lots of reporting and lots of stories about Russia. Um, and assumptions and um, arguments being made about how Russians or the pl- Russian political elite think. Have have you seen? Is there anything you've seen that you're like? That's just not. That's not how it is. What are the things? I guess my question is: What are the things that a Western audience should know about Russia and how Russians think that potentially aren't being aren't understood very well? Yeah, I think one thing that really jumped out at me, uh, obviously, when the war started and all of the Western sanctions. Uh, um, you know, started to to come in. Um, one of the people who were first targeted were uh, the so-called Russian oligarchs. You're talking about Roman Abram- Abramovich and Olen Teripaska. A lot of them came out uh, with uh, quite scathing assessment of the Putin politics, which again is extremely rare. Um, I I understand why those people were, were targeted targeted, but I think it's very important to realize that um, Russia in 2022 is not Russia in 2001, when those people had the right to be called oligarchs because they did wield political power. Those people, as we know um, from sources at the time, they did have a say in decision making. Uh, what we have seen in the past 20, 20 years, which has been corroborated by many sources, is that um, Russia's richest men um, have essentially signed a pact with Vladimir Putin, meaning that they will be allowed to do their business as long as they're not meddling in politics, as, not, as long as they're not asking questions about where um, foreign policy or, or domestic policy are going. Um, so in that sense, um, for the West to expect that by sanctioning Mikhail Friedman or Roman Abramovich, they can actually change the course, the political course in Russia, that's, uh, that's quite short, short-sighted, I would say. Thanks, Natalia. Is there, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is important to, to mention on, on this subject, on, on Russia and Russian experiences of this war? Yeah, maybe I would just go back to uh, to your question about you know what 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 Russians think in Russia. I saw a couple of weeks ago there was this opinion poll which was widely widely shared online. Um, I'm not even going to cite any numbers. Um, I guess the main caveat is that um, I think it's it is quite pointless to hold opinion polls in a country at war, and B, it's uh, quite naive to. Um, uh, talk seriously about the findings um, because, as you know, a lot of those opinion polls are conducted in person or the pollster will call up your phone number. 
Um, and uh, as I know from talking to people who, who work for those organizations, um, um, they're, you know, um, the, those who are being polled on the other side of the phone line, they're often asked, uh, so you know my phone number, how am I supposed to give you a direct answer? So that's... Um, that is a, that's a very bad time for a for a pinning poll. So, um, which obviously makes it very difficult to to um, to make any decisions. And you know, we need to understand that if somebody tells you there's an opinion poll which says that seventy percent of Russians support the war, it basically means nothing because uh, you're in Russia. You know that there's a war censorship law that essentially carries a criminal um, uh, a time in jail for anyone who even calls it a war and if somebody calls you up on the phone and asks what do you think about the russian special military operation in ukraine um i think everyone realizes that that the consequences could, could be quite severe and this is not something that um you know we should um take into account and look at um seriously dom and casey i'd like to bring you in here if, if you will having listened to listen to that listen to to natalia's account what what are your thoughts i mean i thought i thought dom before we started talking to Sarah with these questions, um, you read out that quote from the security account, the Russian um, account to the Security Council, and then Natalia says, for the, for, "Well, you know, we can say that 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 roughly is what a lot of R- Russians will will believe." I mean, that that's that's quite something that's quite chilling. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, uh, uh, we uh, sort of luxuriate, I think, in the West, and we sort of scoff and say, "God, how do anyone but believe this? It's it's you know, it's hogwash." I mean that is a very privileged position to be able to to, to say that from. Um, I I happen to believe that that a lot of what he was saying is rubbish, and a lot of the official pronouncements out of out of Moscow does does fit into this deny, discredit, deflect model. Um, so what is the truth? You know, you argue argue about that. Uh, so we're we are as I say we're lucky that we that we're able to hold these views and and say them and say I think I think you're talking hogwash. Um, we have to have to i think keep hold of the idea that 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 russia is not putin um and that there are many many millions of people in the country who don't have the luxury as we do of being able to be able to scoff at these things openly um and that that i think is is what we are in many ways what we're trying to trying to resist you know we're trying to trying to get through this this very very difficult part of of history and get back to some form of cordial relations with those people, I, I think. But it, it's it's very dispiriting to hear um, to hear Natalia's experience about how these things are are just sort of woven into society. That it's uh, yeah, it's all fine as long as you don't ask too many questions. I mean, it's just just a, a brutalized brutalized society. Um, makes makes us well, makes me think yet again that we're, we're very very lucky over here. Uh, very lucky to have a free press, even though I get bashed every day on Twitter. But there we go. Um, Katie, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, if I can come in there. Um, I read an interesting report today uh, from someone in Russia that's uh, uh, absorbing uh, state television. And they were saying that the way that the yesterday's UN Security Council meeting was being relayed to them on Russian state television was that it was a meeting that was called by Russia so that Russia could uh, condemn the Ukrainians for what they've done in, in Bush and, you know, the West for trying to p- purport this as, as Russian brutality when 
happen when they're the Russians are claiming that's not actually what's happened in Bucha. So, um, you know, obviously the, the people in Russia are extremely vulnerable to uh, to the the lack of information that they're receiving, and interesting to see how that uh, how that UN Security Council uh, briefing is is relayed to them in, in such a different way than than the circumstances of what actually occurred. Another point that I'd make, uh, what Charles Michel was saying today, interestingly, um, going back to the idea of, of Russians uh, fleeing, um, he was suggesting uh, that uh, Russian defectors uh, in the army that are wanting to down uh, weapons and, and flee to Europe could maybe be considered as part of some sort of asylum or refugee program. So uh, perhaps a, a difficult thing to implement in theory, because, you know, if, you, if you're a Russian soldier, downing tools and, and, and fleeing to Europe is not going to be so easy um, in practice as it might be um, on paper. But uh, interesting that uh, the, the president of the European Council is mooting this idea that, you know, you're welcome over here if, if you're willing to uh, to turn your back on, um, on Putin. And there's a, a safe harbour here for you. But as Natalia was sort of discussing um, earlier on you know, Russians leaving Russia and, and seeking um, seeking uh, refuge elsewhere um, aren't having the warmest uh, you know welcome in, in some of the, the host countries that they're turning to and I imagine Russian defectors from the army are going to, to, to struggle to, uh, to have uh, any sort of uh, open arm response from any country that they might head to. Thank you very much, Casey. Can I just, um, from all of you, get your, your final thoughts on just what, what we should be looking for um, in in the next few days? Uh, what we think, what we think we're going to see, and then if we can, if, if Natalia would like the final word, that would be that would be wonderful. Final thought for me would be keep an eye on the NATO meeting, two day NATO meeting that was yesterday and today, uh, meeting of, of, of NATO uh, foreign secretaries. But also at the meeting were in, were invited representatives from Finland and Sweden, uh, looking at very likely that Finland will apply and be fast-tracked for membership, possibly even before the next major NATO summit in June in Madrid. So it would be very interesting if if, uh, Finland seeks to and is fast-tracked for joining. And also at the NATO meeting, I had representatives uh, from the the, um, Indo-Pacific partners. So NATO does have Indo-Pacific partners, but there were representatives from Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and uh, Republic of Korea, South Korea, at this NATO meeting. So very interesting that, um, as we saw yesterday, President Zelensky is complaining that the UN and the UN Security Council are blocked with the, with the veto, the power of veto in the P5. He says that's a that's a, um, uh, an, a gives a, a license to kill almost because Russia can veto anything. There seems to be this this growing group elsewhere. Um, I won't use the phrase coalition of the willing because it's a very loaded term. But but under the banner of NATO, Czech, the Czech Republic is supplying T-72 tanks and you've got Asia Pacific nations and external nations at the seat uh, at the table now. So very interesting moves in terms of security architectures elsewhere outside the outside of the norm in response to this aggression. So, yeah, keep an eye for any uh, any communiques at the end of the of today's NATO summit. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Casey O'Neill. I think uh, in, in terms of fighting, we're likely to uh, see that uh, concentrated in, in the Donbass, as we spoke about, as, as Russia has sort of not tried to make a secret of their intention to uh, to capture that area fully um, in, in the coming uh, days and weeks. And in Mariupol, uh, unfortunately, uh, it, it seems that there's more uh, shelling and, and, and street fighting and devastation um, likely to visit uh, those parts in the coming days. I think after uh, Bush 
corruption and and the scale of of um, depravity that, that 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 has been uncovered there. These mass graves, these bodies that have been you know bound with a uh, with a. Uh, their hands behind their back and uh, lining the street. I, th- I think uh, as the Russian retreat uh, continues from Kiev, we're likely to see you know other towns like Busha, um, as we did yesterday, where uh, you know more uh, atrocities are going to be uncovered. Unfortunately. And Natalia, would you like the, the your final thoughts? Sure. I would actually point out two things. Uh, one is something that Dom, I think, mentioned earlier on, is the uh, discussion about a possible embargo on Russian um, Russian oil, Russian gas, even Russian coal. Um, obviously, the sanctions we have seen so far are um, incredibly crypt- uh, crippling, impactful. This is not something that the Kremlin had foreseen. Um, it's important to say that uh, until the, you know, just before the start of the war, Russia had the world's fourth largest foreign currency reserve. Putin was very well prepared. He had this rainy day fund to dip into. In case of any Western sanctions, that money is not available to him, as at least half of it is uh, literally frozen abroad. Um, a large chunk of it is in gold, which is actually uh, located in vaults of the Russian Central Bank in Russia. It appears that there are no willing buyers for that. So um, uh, Kremlin could be cash-strapped already. And if we are facing a potential oil embargo which is something that no one could have foreseen, even at the start uh, of the invasion. Um, uh, This obviously could have catastrophic uh, consequences uh, for the Putin regime, for Russian economy, obviously, you know, sending shockwaves throughout the global economy. Um, So that's number one. Um, Second point is, um, as... You might remember um, there was quite a successful round of talks um, in Istanbul last week between the Russian and the Ukrainian delegation. Um, both sides sounded optimistic, saying that it looked like they were getting close to a compromise. Um, what we have heard from uh, the Kremlin in recent days, especially after the massacre in Bucha, is that they uh, um, they were trying to say that the massacre was a quote-unquote stage in order to derail the peace talks, um, which looked like finally they were going somewhere and there was a hope for um, for at least a ceasefire or a truce. Um, so we need to, we, we really need to follow what's what's happening with those talks because I'm as far as I'm aware, um, they are still going on at, at a lower level via video conferences, but I haven't seen any announcements about any... Um, high-level, you know, in-person talks as, as we saw last week. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. 
Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.